church. Uh, for today's scripture reading, there's going to have two parts. The first part is Exodus 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, uh, 1 to 14, sorry. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. So if you, if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading Exodus 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, the NIV version. And here I go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous. So the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much, more, much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Verses 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they, put, and they built Python and were up. Python and Ramesses as the stories as the store cities of Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more the cities multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to to, to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. For the second part I'll turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Once again, that's First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, uh, verses 12 to 13, sorry. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you, can, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Uh, just a couple of, uh, I guess, announcements to make, um, uh, like directions as to what's happening in our service. Uh, the first thing you may have noticed this morning that's different from last week is that we had a, a second scripture reading, and that was on purpose. Uh, starting this Sunday today, uh, we will try to have two scripture readings each week, one from the Exodus text that either myself or another gentleman will be preaching on, plus a New Testament text that coheres with or relates somehow to the Exodus text. And during the preaching time, we'll try to make it clear how the texts actually relate to one another. Um, I think we need to obey 1 Timothy 4.13, where Paul told Timothy to, one of the things he told him was to devote himself to the public reading of scripture uh, whenever the church was gathered. I grew up in a mainline church, the United Church, and honestly, they read more scripture during the service than we evangelical types tend to do, which I've always found a very curious thing because we are the ones who say we are (laughs) Bible-believing Christians. So we want to read more scripture in our uh, service. The second thing that we are introducing this morning is what I would call a pregnant time of silence 
maybe 30 seconds or so, uh, immediately after the sermon, that can be used for silent prayer and reflection. Ours is perhaps the first generation that would put an iPod on when we are climbing up a mountain. Uh, We just have to have noise around us, it seems, all of the time. Uh, Silence is a spiritual discipline, I would argue, and so we want to build times of silence into our gatherings as the people of God. It may be uncomfortable for some of us at first, but just expect that right after the sermon for the next few weeks in the foreseeable future to have that time of silence, very countercultural thing where we just simply listen to God, perhaps pray, uh, use it for reflection on the word that is preached. Is that good? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray, and then we will uh, get into our new series on the book of Exodus. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you are giving us right now air in our lungs, a beating heart, eyes to see, a consciousness. Uh, Father, we don't take these things for granted. We know that they come from you, that you sustain us by your powerful word each and every hour and minute and second of every day. We thank you for the food on our tables. We thank you for the spiritual food that is your word. And now, Lord God, as we open your word again and as a people immerse ourselves in it, we know that it is only a letter without the Holy Spirit. And so we pray the Spirit's power to be at work this morning. In whatever way that you would have, Spirit, uh, this is your pleasure to wield your word in whatever fashion you would. And so we simply say you are free to do that. We pray, Lord, for your help to stay alert to the things that are in your word. We pray that you would expand our hearts and our minds and their capacity to see the glory that you have embedded in this revealed word. And ultimately, Lord, would you change us for your glory as we go out on mission uh, later today and during the week. Help us to draw from the spiritual sustenance that we receive when we are gathered as we are today. We pray these things in the mighty and the powerful name of our friend and master and Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's with a sense of personal excitement uh, that we today kick off this new sermon series on the book of Exodus. Many of you will know that for the past three years, I have lived, slept, and ate Exodus Exodus has been the focus of my doctoral work at Southern Seminary, and so I am excited to finally get opportunity to share with you just some of the fruits of my labors. The format of this sermon series will be a little different than the format of our last series in 1 Peter. What we're going to do with Exodus is take a passage per chapter instead of going systematically through every single verse of every chapter. So, for example, this morning we're looking at the verses that were read earlier, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1. But then next week, instead of continuing at verse 15, we'll go to another passage in the second chapter. Now, what we're trying to do here is to choose passages from each chapter of the book that are central to the story. Passages that sort of encapsulate the flow of the book. Somewhat arbitrary, perhaps, uh, but I'm hopeful that this format will serve us well. And one of the reasons is if we did every verse, we'd be in Exodus until probably 2021 or so. 
So we want to try to uh, shorten the sermon series somewhat. So again, today we're at verses 1 through 14 of Exodus, but I want to begin by talking about movies. Specifically, I want to talk just for a moment about a certain trend that has been popular in Hollywood, namely the trend of releasing prequel movies after the sequels have already come out. Releasing prequel movies after the sequels have already come out. Have you noticed this trend? One example is from early in my life when the first three installments of, of the Star Wars franchise were released. But then those three movies were followed in later years by another set of what were prequel movies. So these later movies were set at a time before the time period of the original three movies. Another example, in 1995, Batman Forever came out. Uh, but then 10 years later, in 2005, Batman Begins came out, which was the prequel <laughs> to the earlier film. And so we see this trend in Hollywood. Sometimes prequels are released after the sequels have already been released. Well, friends, the case is very different with the Bible. In the Bible, God gives chapter 1 before he gives chapter 2. He gives the prequel before the sequel. Are you following? He gives Genesis and then he gives Exodus. And the thing is, if we would be good readers of the Bible, we have to read the prequel before we read the sequel. If we'd have a, a solid grasp of the sequel, then we have to immerse ourselves in the prequel first. The point here is that a reading of Genesis is necessary if we would understand rightly what's going on in Exodus. If we come to Exodus without any grasp of Genesis... And we risk coming, I think, to errant or wrong conclusions about what we find in Exodus. In our passage today, in Exodus 1, verses 1 through 14, what we find is a rather dark picture of suffering. The descendants of Jacob are located there in the nation of Egypt, suffering at the hands of Pharaoh and his brutal regime. Now, if we simply start our reading there, without any knowledge of the prequel, Genesis, we might be tempted to ask questions like this. We read these first 14 verses and we ask, well, where in the world was God when his people needed him? Was God asleep here? Why such a notable absence of God in these initial verses of Exodus when his people are there suffering in this way? But again, knowledge of the prequel, Genesis, helps us tremendously in understanding better what's going on here as Exodus opens. Because what had God declared sovereignly to Abram 
back in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, 13 and following, God had said to Abram, Know for certain, Abram, that your offspring, your descendants, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be, listen to the detail, afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You see what God had promised in the prequel to Exodus. God had essentially laid out to Abram what the Exodus period would look like. And God did that, we hasten to add, many years before the Exodus ever happened. Again, let's read that part of the prequel. God said, it's so important. He said, Abram, know for certain that your offspring, your descendants... Children of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So with that, we read the opening verses of Exodus, and we understand from the peak prequel that the people living in bondage to Pharaoh, listen, are simply living out the sovereign decree of Almighty God. God knew all about their suffering and how long it would last. God was not aloof to the cries of His people. He was not asleep at the switch. He's not aloof to our cries. Ever. Well, what else had the prequel Genesis informed us of concerning the Exodus years? Well, back in Genesis 46, 1 through 4, it had been God himself. Listen, it had been God himself. God himself who had encouraged Jacob and family to go down to Egypt in the first place. God had said to Jacob in Genesis 46 that he, God, would make a great nation out of Jacob's descendants while they lived down in Egypt. And God promised his presence to Jacob's family in Egypt, both in their going into Egypt and in their coming out. So then, friends, the prequel, Genesis, tells us an awful lot, doesn't it? It tells us that God was fully in control. We need to understand, fully in control of events in Egypt. God was fully awake with regard to his people's experience in Egypt. God was not caught by surprise. He never is. He was not caught by surprise by his people's difficulty in Egypt. In fact, we might even assert God himself willed their time in Egypt, according to the prequel. And as for the people who are enslaved under Pharaoh as Exodus opens, for their part, they had known from the prequel 
the story of their ancestor Abraham, who at one point in his life had gone down to Egypt because of a famine, Genesis 12. He'd gone down to Egypt because of a famine. And while there in Egypt, Abraham's wife Sarai had been effectively imprisoned by the Pharaoh of Egypt. This imprisonment of Abraham's wife had upset God. And so God then struck Pharaoh with great plagues. And what had happened was Abraham's wife was released. Right? So we've got Egypt, Pharaoh, plagues, release. And Abraham, together with his wife, had left Egypt with great wealth. What a story. The people of Exodus living under Pharaoh in Egypt would have known that story. And that story would give them hope. Could that story from the prequel Genesis be sort of a preview of what might happen to them? Well, friend, what about you? Are you going through it right now? Are you questioning God's care in your life? Questioning whether God is present with you, awake for you as you suffer. I want to tell you this morning that hope and assurance can be found in reading these initial verses of the book of Exodus through the lens of the prequel Genesis and seeing there that God is always sovereign and awake and in control of events in our lives, no matter what they are, even in those times where we might be unsure of his presence. Well, let's go to the text and look at some things in greater detail here. Verse 1 reads, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his Household. Now, the scene that is being detailed and described in verse 1 is the exact same scene that is recorded in Genesis 46. In Genesis 46, we had Jacob and family traveling from Beersheba to Egypt, and that's exactly what's being reflected here in Exodus 1.1. So Exodus 1.1 places us back in Genesis 46, about 70 years or so before the death of Jacob's son, Joseph. And then verses 2 through 4 give us a listing of the sons of Jacob who made that journey down to Egypt. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah... Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Verse 5 tells us that all the descendants of Jacob were how many persons? Seventy persons. And knowing the little bit that we do about numbers in Hebrew literature... I think we should be paying close attention to this record here of the 70 descendants of Jacob. 
Why? Well, in the prequel, in Genesis, it had been 70 nations that had been listed in Genesis 10 prior to the Tower of Babel incident, after which the 70 nations had been scattered. Peter Latehart, who is a very thoughtful theologian and writer, says this, When we learn that there are 70 in the household of Jacob in Exodus 1.5, we are learning that Israel replaces the 70 nations that fell at the Tower of Babel. So then what we have reflected to us in Genesis 1-5 with these 70 descendants of Jacob is nothing less, listen, nothing less than the beginnings of a new humanity that God was forming in order to accomplish His missionary purposes in the world. This is the beginning here of the formation of a new humanity that will carry out God's missionary purposes. Let's go to Exodus 1.6. Now we get this transitional verse here. It's a transitional verse. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers, listen, and all that generation. Now in the prequel, in Genesis, Joseph had died right at the end of Genesis. At Genesis 50, verse 26, right at the end of the book. Exodus 1.6 reflects that, and it's transitional because it marks the end of a generation here. As we move forward now to Exodus 1.7, the focus will shift to an entire people, the wider group of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 7, we go from 70 descendants to a good deal more descendants. Now, it would be hard to overstate the importance of reading Exodus 1-7 in light of the prequel, Genesis. Exodus 1-7 must be, must be read through the lens of Genesis. Because Exodus 1-7 is literally brimming with obvious references and allusions back to the Genesis material. Watch what happens to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Earlier we mentioned Genesis 46.3, and you can flip there if you like, Genesis 46.3 where God had declared to Jacob that while in Egypt, Jacob's family would be made into a great nation. Well, Exodus 1-7 is the initial fulfillment of that promise. God, listen, God in happy victory over the infertility of people like Sarah, Rachel, and Rebecca, Genesis. In happy victory over infertility, God now brings superfertility to the descendants of Jacob. Lots of stuff happening in the bedrooms there in Egypt. Jacob's descendants are now teeming 
in the land of Egypt in massive numbers. Now, what's happening here at the theological level? Well, if we recall in the prequel Genesis, God had commanded Adam, God had commanded Noah, God had commanded Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. And now in Exodus 1-7, we have the Hebrew people acting like a new Adam. Because now there is a super fruitfulness in conceptions and in wombs and in births. They are multiplying like crazy in the land of Egypt. This is nothing less than a new creation moment. Israel is a new Adam here, being fruitful and multiplying. And I say that Exodus 1-7 is describing a new creation moment also because of the specific language that gets used in the original verse. Now bear with me here for a moment. A little bit of Hebrew here. In the original Hebrew of Exodus 1-7, we have four words, four words in this single verse, namely para, which means to bear fruit, sharots, which means to swarm or to team, rava, which means multiply, and maleh, which means fill. Now here's the thing. All four of those Hebrew words show up in the span of just three verses in the prequel in Genesis 1, verses 20 through 22, where at the original creation of the world, sea creatures and birds were commanded to swarm, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill their domains. Exodus 1-7 is purposely re-employing all four of those creation terms from Genesis 1 in order to say to us, this teeming, multiplying, filling, fruitful fertility of the Hebrew people in Egypt is like a new creation moment. Something is going on here. God is forming a new creation, a new humanity right there in Egypt, and he's forming them to be the vehicle that will fulfill God's missionary purposes for God's world. The new Adam... This burgeoning people of Israel is now purposed by God to do, listen, to do what Adam ultimately failed to do, which was to be fruitful and multiply his family across the globe. Why? To be God's image bearers that would spread God's glory across God's globe. Adam's fall into sin had tarnished that purpose of God, had hindered it, but God had not forgotten it. Exodus 1-7 is an indication that a new Adam, a new creation, was being raised up in Egypt to accomplish the spread of God's glory across the globe. And his purposes for his church have not changed. But somebody doesn't like it. Somebody hates the purposes of God. Let's go to verse 8 now. Enter the Pharaoh. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This new king over Egypt, this pharaoh who is introduced here, we need to understand, was the most powerful person in the world at the time. What we notice, however, is that he's not named anywhere in the book of Exodus. So get this, the most powerful ruler in the world at the time doesn't get the dignity of a name in Exodus. Yet, on the other hand, the two lowly peasant midwives who defy this Pharaoh a little later on, they do get named in the book of Exodus. It's interesting for us to see where the Bible places the priority on the lowly and the humble. Amen? like the midwives, not on the lofty and arrogant, like Pharaoh, who doesn't get a name. Now, without getting into the history too, too much, suffice it to say that the specific Pharaoh who had been in power back when Joseph had worked in Egypt, different Pharaoh, he was probably, that Pharaoh was probably not a full-blooded Egyptian. Probably that pharaoh during Joseph's time was part of a Semitic people group who had invaded Egypt and taken over, the people group had. Well, eventually that particular Semitic people group had been driven back out of Egypt. And at that point in time, native Egyptians once again took back control of their land. Probably, we think, Exodus 1.8 reflects that time of change, that time when native Egyptians took back control of their territory and installed native Egyptian pharaohs. These new native Egyptian pharaohs would be less than sympathetic with Semitic peoples of any sort because they had just driven out that non-native Semitic group. And being unsympathetic to Semitic peoples meant that they would be unsympathetic also to any descendants of Abraham. So that when we read in Exodus 1.8 that the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph, probably this means not that the new Pharaoh was oblivious to the existence of Joseph, because we remember Joseph had worked at a very high level in the Egyptian government, Obviously, he knew who he was. Rather, what this means is that the new Pharaoh was unwilling to acknowledge any contribution that Joseph had made to the national life of Egypt. Not knowing Joseph here probably indicates a hesitancy on the part of this new Pharaoh to celebrate any of the significant things that Joseph had once accomplished for Egypt. And then we have verse 9, where this new Pharaoh becomes the first person to talk in the book of Exodus. He said to his people, and probably his people here means specifically the royal advisors that he had huddled around him. Just imagine the scene, the Pharaoh's there on the throne, 
royal advisors are huddled around. He said to these advisors, Behold, look, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. I'm not going to try to sustain that through the whole series. <laughs> What's Pharaoh doing here? He's simply commenting on the reality that we have already, as readers, we've already learned about back in verse 7. The Hebrew people had been teeming and multiplying in the land of Egypt, but the tone between verse 7 and verse 9 is very different. Whereas in verse 7, we need to see this, in verse 7 it had been a sort of happy celebration, right, of God creating his new Adam in Egypt. In verse 9, from Pharaoh's perspective, the multiplication of Hebrew people in the land of Egypt is a problem. It is not a happy celebration for Pharaoh of Egypt. Nobody should be rejoicing over the new creation blessing of multiplied descendants of Jacob. Far from it. This was something to be anxious about. In Pharaoh's way of thinking, it was a problematic occurrence. As Terence Fretheim puts it in his commentary on Exodus, a sign of blessing for Israel is a sign of disaster for Pharaoh. And so, friends, we see already here that God and Pharaoh are at odds. Shows up right in this verse. The masses of Hebrew people in Egypt mean very different things to God and then to the Pharaoh. We might put it like this, friends. This is one we can take home. The blessing of God is never celebrated by the seed of the serpent. I'll say that again. The blessing of God is never celebrated by the seed of the serpent. Pharaoh hates what God loves. Pharaoh, seed of the serpent, is opposed to the glory of God. He is opposed to the purposes of God in God's world. Now, what we notice also in verse 9 is that Pharaoh seems to be really good at political propaganda. Does he not? He says to his advisors, look at it with me again. He says, behold, the people, notice that, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. <laughs> notice what he does there. He calls the masses of Hebrew folk a people. What's he doing here? He's telling his advisors that there are now two people groups here in Egypt, them and us, Israelites and Egyptians, and if something isn't done soon, it'll be them controlling the land and not us. What Pharaoh does here is really what Adolf Hitler did in the middle of the 20th century. Hitler spread the false and very insidious message that the Jewish people were a threat to Germany and the world and something had to be done about it. Pharaoh in Exodus 1.9 sets the pattern that Hitler would later follow. Pharaoh labels the Hebrew people as a problem that needs to be solved. 
And then in verse 10, Pharaoh begins to outline his plan. And there's some tragic humor here in the text we need to look at. Pharaoh says, Come, let us deal shrewdly. Sounds like the serpent, doesn't he? Let us deal shrewdly with them. That is, let us deal shrewdly with these Hebrew people. Lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now that word shrewdly, notice that, you can circle it in your Bible if you like. The word shrewdly near the start of the verse is translated from a Hebrew word that can also rightly be translated wisely. This is a wisdom word. Pharaoh, you see, wants to deal with wisdom concerning the people of God, the Hebrews, but what Pharaoh fails to recognize is that wisdom, according to a verse like Psalm 111.10, wisdom only comes how? Through the fear of Israel's God, Yahweh. Pharaoh does not fear Yahweh. And so the best Pharaoh can do here is make a pretense toward wisdom. The humor is that that the story is going to show that Pharaoh remains very unwise. Two lowly Hebrew midwives outwit this man, who is the most powerful ruler in the then known world. Now, did you know, Christian, that godless people who would try to persecute and harass God's people, though they be powerful in terms of what the world thinks is powerful, though they have earthly resources and maybe have some intelligence, without God, they cannot be truly wise. Amen? And thus they are no match for God in whom wisdom resides. Read the last chapters of Job. It shows us where wisdom resides. Well, notice also here in verse 10, the specific concerns, this is very important, specific concerns that are raised by Pharaoh. (laughs) Pharaoh says, what's he worried about? He's worried that the Hebrews will multiply further. That will be a problem. And Pharaoh is also worried that the Hebrew people will escape from the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh would like to see the Hebrew population curtailed. And Pharaoh would like to see the Hebrews stay in Egypt. Why? So that Pharaoh can continue to exploit them for his building projects. The question is, what were some of the main components, the main promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the prequel called Genesis. In Genesis, God had promised, hadn't he, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a multiplication of the descendants of the patriarchs. And God had also promised them a land of their own, right? The very two promises that Pharaoh wants to terminate here. Stop multiplying, And stay here in Egypt so that you can't go and inherit your land. So what verse 10 is really showing us is that Pharaoh is the consummate seed of the serpent. 
Pharaoh is the consummate anti-God figure who is in total opposition to God's great plans and purposes. And this will not go well for Pharaoh, as we're going to see as the story unfolds. The person, folks, the person who is, who shows opposition to the purposes of God, the person who shows defiance in regard to God's plans will end up having a hard time of it because he or she is scraping against the very grain of God's universe. And in that case, they're going to get some serious life splinters. Verse 11, with Pharaoh's anti-God, serpent-like attitudes entrenched, now he implements his plan. Therefore, says verse 11, they set taskmasters over the Hebrews to afflict them over God's new creation people They set taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now watch this. Pharaoh implemented this harsh, evil plan. Yes? Pharaoh had this anti-God posture here. Yes? Pharaoh was fully responsible and accountable for his heinous actions. Yes? However... Also remember the prequel. What did God sovereignly declare all by himself in Genesis 15:13? God had promised to Abram that Abram's descendants would be afflicted 400 years in a land not their own. And now it was happening courtesy of Pharaoh's attitude and plan. But over top of it all, we need to grapple with this because it's the teaching of Scripture. We don't like it with our Greek brains, either or kind of thing that we always do. Over top of it all was God himself, according to Genesis 15.13. So then unbeknownst to evil Pharaoh, Responsible for his actions, Pharaoh. Unbeknownst to him, he's acting within the parameters of a plan that was much more massive than himself. Even in Pharaoh's harshness, God was present at this point in Israel's history, sovereignly guiding events. What does Psalm 76.10 say? It says that the wrath of man praises God. The wrath of man praises God. God was still in control of events here. Even while Pharaoh set taskmasters over Israel and would remain responsible for his evil. The theological term is compatibilism. God is sovereign over everything, yet people remain responsible for their sin. I have a whole book on that written by Don Carson if you ever want to read it. But that is what Scripture clearly presents to us. Now, who were these taskmasters that Pharaoh set over Israel? Taskmasters were like bosses over labor gangs who compelled their subjects to work on projects of the state without any pay. These Egyptian bosses would have been ruthless in their tactics because not only did they hate 
the Hebrew people. They also knew that their own livelihood depended on their subjects meeting quotas. So in verse 11, we have the taskmasters, notice, afflicting the Hebrew people with heavy burdens. The sense here is that they crushed the people. They forced the people. They wore the people down. So an overall picture begins to emerge of brutality here. Harassment, little to no relief for the people of God. The text says the people of God built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, here's the thing that we notice about the book of Exodus, which I think is quite masterfully done. I think it's purposeful, is that here at the start of the book, notice, what are the people of God engaged in? They're engaged in this construction project under the brutal human master Pharaoh. But then at the close of Exodus, the people of God are engaged again in a construction project, but a very different one. Namely, they are building the tabernacle, and they are building it with honor and with joy for their good, benevolent, just master, Yahweh. I think it's a purposeful bookend in the book of Exodus that we need to notice. Well, as we come now to verse 12, I want you to notice God at work here in the first part of verse 12. Very important for us to notice this. Even though it does not explicitly mention God, we see God at work here. The start of verse 12 reads as follows. Oh, blessed, blessed verse. The more the Hebrew people were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread abroad. (laughs) Amen? Who's doing that? God's hand is at work here. The more they were oppressed, the the more they multiplied and spread abroad. What we need to see here is that no matter how powerful Pharaoh felt in burdening God's people with brutal labor, God was more powerful still. God ensured that the evil schemes of Pharaoh would be turned into good and turned into blessing for God's people. God ensured, despite Pharaoh carrying out his evil plan, that God's purpose would yet go forward. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. God can still do that, friends. He can take the wrath of human beings and turn it into blessing, and turn it into good for His glory. At the end of verse 12, we have the Egyptians, notice, shaking in their ancient Near Eastern boots. The Egyptians in dread of the people of Israel. The word translated dread has to do with a sort of terrified worry. Terrified worry on the part of the Egyptians. Why? Well, because the, with so very many Hebrew people bursting out and multiplying across the land of Egypt, the threat of war became very real. What if these masses of Hebrew people decide to turn on us and fight us? What then? And so, verses 13 and 14, notice what they do. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. 
In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In other words, with the possible threat of war looming on the horizon, the Egyptians doubled down on oppressing the Hebrews, making life almost intolerable for the people of God. Of special note in verses 13 and 14 is this fact, that in the original Hebrew we have a five-fold repetition of the word avad, which means serve. The Egyptians ruthlessly made the Hebrews serve with hard service and all kinds of service. In all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. The fivefold repetition of this word serve is purposeful here. The next time in the book of Exodus that the same word serve will be used is over at chapter 3, verse 20, where God promises Moses that the people serving Pharaoh in affliction will one day escape to serve God at Mount Sinai. And one of the great questions that the book of Exodus poses to us is the question, who are you going to serve? Will it be God, the true and living God, or will will it be someone or something else? You have to serve someone, to quote Bob Dylan. Who will it be? All right, so we've ventured through our first text in Exodus. What we've tried to point out here along the way is that these verses, this part of the story, did not happen in a vacuum. I hope we have seen that today. In the prequel called Genesis, God had decreed a future affliction for his people in Egypt, Genesis 15, 13. And the first 14 verses of Exodus simply describe the coming to pass of God's decree. Further, in the prequel called Genesis, it was God who had commanded Jacob in the first place to go down to Egypt, where God would make a great nation of Jacob's descendants, Genesis 46. And the first 14 verses of Exodus merely describe the actualization of that promise. The nation is becoming numerous and great, even as they live in the crucible of persecution and suffering. You know, whenever the Jewish Passover meal is celebrated, one of the features of that meal is the serving of a hard-boiled egg. The presence of this hard-boiled egg in the Jewish Passover meal has been interpreted in several different ways, but one of the most common interpretations is that the hard-boiled egg symbolizes the Hebrew people under Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus. The more the egg was boiled, the harder it became. The more the Hebrew people were tested and afflicted under Pharaoh, the stronger they became under the good and sovereign hand of the Lord God Almighty. As Christians, we serve a Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, like Israel under Pharaoh, was boiled in the furnace of affliction. Jesus was tried, afflicted, tortured, and eventually crucified. 
Yet what was God doing through that horror? God was working out His greatest redemptive masterpiece ever. We serve that Son of God who was tried, afflicted, tortured, and crucified. And He says to us, His church, in Matthew 10.22, You, He's talking to you and me, You will be hated by all for My name's sake. Now this seems to be a repeated theme in God's pleasure in the preaching here at Snowden (laughs) over the past several months. God in His pleasure has us here again this morning. The church is not above the master of the church. We need to expect persecution for confessing the name of Jesus Christ. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4. But again, friends, and then I'm done, we cling with hope to to Exodus 1.12, don't we? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread a God. The God of the church is the same God who superintended the people in Egypt. He can easily still frustrate the evil plans of man. The God of the church is is the same God who, despite the vicious persecution against the early church that is recorded in the book of Acts, despite that, He continued to grow His church and give it the inner fortitude to boldly preach the Gospel. God can still boil eggs in the furnace of affliction and make them strong for His sake as He works out His great redemptive plan. The God of the prequel... All of biblical history is the prequel, is still the God in the sequel in which we live. His power remains unchanged. I hope that we digest and imbibe this truth deep in our bones as we go forth in strength for his mission, even though we might receive static. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you honor and we give you praise for this word in the book of Exodus. May we go into our week this week with perhaps a fresh understanding of you and your purposes and your glory. Uh, May we see that this ancient word in the Old Testament applies directly to our situation in our life. And may, Holy Spirit, may you bring it to our remembrance this week in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to spend now 30 seconds or so in silent prayer and reflection. Go as children of God, remember the words spoken here, review the songs sung here, rely on the fellowship known here, reverence the Savior worshipped here, recollect the blessings found here, respond to the Spirit met here, until by God's grace we return here, through Jesus Christ our Lord.